0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And one of them is courage. It's been said that a hero is someone who is brave for just a little bit longer. Oskar Schindler was an unlikely World War II hero, a member of the Nazi Party, a war profiteer, and a husband who strayed and drank to excess. But more than 7,000 people are alive today, that are direct descendants from the more than 1,200 Jews saved by Schindler from certain death in German Nazi concentration camps. He employed these prisoners in his enamel and ammunition factories that were located next to the concentration camps. Schindler would bribe officials to get Jews and their relatives transported to his factory to save their lives. At the height of the war, Schindler amassed a massive amount of money In order to save all of the Jews he saved, he spent his entire personal fortune. What you're about to hear are the stories from Schindler's survivors. Here's Greg Hengler.
1: We think we know what goodness looks like. It looks like Gandhi, skinny and dressed in his handmade loincloth, or Mother Teresa, drab and subdued in her nun's habit. Goodness does not drink womanize and wear Nazi patches? Or does it? In his acclaimed international bestseller, Schindler's Ark, author Thomas Keneally tells us that one of the most common sentiments of the Schindler Jews is still, I don't know why he did it. Keneally drops a hint in his description of Oscar Schindler's childhood, a strong Catholic household and deeply religious parents. The nearest neighbors were a Jewish rabbi family, and the two sons were Oscar's closest friends for years. To Helen Rosenzweig, a Jewish maid at the Krakow concentration camp who settled in Boca Raton, Florida, Schindler's close relationship with the Nazi SS camp commandant and his concern for Jews was confusing.
2: Oscar Schindler came down into the kitchen, and he took me to the window. He says, you see the people down the hill? They carried stone. They were digging the hill. He said, look at them, watch them. You see people in Egypt, you Jewish people, when they were enslaved, and then they were freed from Egypt? This is what's going to happen to you. You will see. You're going to be free from that hell.
1: Schindler made good on his promise, He also saved Helen's siblings. In a 1964 interview, standing in front of his dingy apartment in West Germany, Oskar Schindler for once commented on what he did. I felt the Jews were being destroyed, and it didn't mean anything to me that they were Jewish. To me, they were just human beings. I had to help them. There was no choice. Schindler was so obedient to practice love towards imprisoned Jews that he eventually paid a price. Here's one of Schindler's Jews who immigrated to the United States after the war, Leon Lason.
2: On one occasion he had his birthday party and some of the inmates uh, baked a cake and uh, a little girl, a young girl, was, took it up to the uh, office and gave it to him. So uh, he gave her a kiss. And this, of course, was a major crime uh, during that period of time.
1: Schindler was subsequently arrested. It was one of three separate arrests. But he was able to talk and bribe his way out of all of them. On the eve of May 8th, 1945, Oscar Schindler had important news that the Jews in his care waited five years to hear. Here again is Leon Lason and Saul Erbach, who settled in New Jersey in 1951.
2: Schindler asked us all to gather around. He stood up on something high, and he told us that uh, we we were free, the war is over, the Germans have surrendered, and that he was going to leave, and these guards were standing around behind him were going to leave as well. And he wished as well.
3: Everyone there was in either in tears or in laughs or trying to crawl toward Schindler to kiss him and thank him personally, which was impossible to do with a 1,000 people. It was an emotionally charged uh, gathering. Uh, where we just uh, uh, were short of being able to express our feelings, the unbelievable achievements that we have survived the war, and it was Oscar Schindler that uh, brought us to this point.
1: Following World War II, Oscar Schindler was isolated and rejected by his fellow citizens. He was called a Jew kisser, sworn at on the streets, and stones were thrown at him nobody would do business with him. There was even an attempt on his life. It was said that he was their bad conscience, the conscience of all those who had known something but did nothing. Two decades after his release, Leon Laysen reunited with his rescuer in Los Angeles. He wasn't sure if Schindler would recognize him, but no reminder proved necessary.
2: I reached out my hand and started to introduce myself because I realized you know, I was a, a grown man and last time he saw me I was not yet 15 you know so he interrupted me he says I know who you are you're a little lace
1: Oscar Schindler took on perhaps one of the toughest forces of the 20th century and saved over 1200 Jews during a time where over 6 million were being exterminated if you picked up a handful of sand, it would have over a thousand grains. Over a thousand souls lived because of one Oscar Schindler. On October 9th, 1974, Oscar Schindler died. Upon his request, they buried him in Israel. Five hundred of his survivors were there. I'm Greg Hengler. And this is our American stories.
3: Just let you-
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. Uh, The stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of The Doors' music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last? Art past a year, five years Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music Or Pink Floyd's music Or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare Why? And were those writers when they were writing it Thinking about creating art that lasts Or just getting out there and making a hit? Well it turns out That there's a man who's Trying to answer that question in a book Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist Who has advised clients like Google Taser and Tony Robbins We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from.
4: In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, He desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he, he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism and, and basically his premise is how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we, we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a, a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the, the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term. We know there are these books that, that last and last. And yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the, the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it it's strange where most of the energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it, right? You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I, I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it. And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation, but it did endure, you know, it, it was published in 1937, and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads, divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It It, it was given a second edition 10 years later, so 19... 19- Forty-seven or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was published in a third edition. And it's still reading today. And, and here I am talking to, to you guys about it. And so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time. It's earned the author a cult-like following among fellow writers and creatives. And I think what's so impressive is that he set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it he has another quip he said you know i'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat and it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are James Salter is one of my favorite novelists. I was was reading one of his books not long ago, and on the back, which wouldn't wouldn't have been written by him, but it it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I I just love that idea. I I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time.
0: And... By my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time.
4: I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands had released their albums decades before I was born. Um, They were still going strong by the time I came around. I I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical, could have endured and, and somehow been so... So timeless and and true even to a a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer, I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And, And yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that it's the, the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings, and they, they hope you'll go away. And that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies. And, and you know, now, 10 years after its release, it sells about 300 copies a week. And I, I went on as a marketer. I became the director of marketing in American Apparel. And it was interesting at that this company which sold hundreds of millions of garments every year, the best-selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory. It was... And they had this mission of making, making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future. And I, I just love this idea of making things... That can last with with my own books. You know, perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me, or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the New York Times bestseller list uh, for the most part. And yet, quietly and and like clockwork, they sell about five thousand copies across the various titles every single week. And the marketing for them has long since finished. And yet, you know, surprise, uh, one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the the best book to have written as a creative would have been what to expect when you're expecting, because every day in every part of the world, uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do. And so I'm I'm fascinated by that kind of work, the 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 work that endures, and it it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure. And so I was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common, and I, I set out, I I interviewed uh, all sorts of of authors and editors and producers and. Uh, marketers and entrepreneurs, and, and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last. And, I, you know, I found a few things. I think first is that work needs to be unique. If it, it's very hard for it to endure, if it is not definitive, if it if it doesn't stand out, stand alone. And yet, on the other hand, it should do a very simple job. I think one of, one of my editors said to me one time, she said, Ryan, it's not what a book is, it's what a book does. And by that, she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator. It's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it. It helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question. This is a blank that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're going to have a lot of trouble. I, I was. Interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time. He's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles. you know, He puts the top down. He puts it on the stereo. And he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience, that the idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something I think that people miss. And, and so that, that's an essential part of this sort of creative process.
0: And when we come back, more from Ryan Holiday on his book, Perennial Seller, and my goodness, what a fascinating question. What makes things last? Not just art, products, heck, maybe even a marriage. More after these messages. We continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller, and here's Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career.
4: In 2001, I I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site, Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song By the band Iron Maiden. I I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known as a 13 year old or a 14 year old that that seven minute song, I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years over many different presidents that that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would would help me make a living as a writer but a few weeks ago I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show it would have been you know 20,000 people in the audience and next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on instant messenger about this band that I'd just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums, you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own that they perform exclusively for right so most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television to be on the radio to get new fans and and iron maiden has said that their lead singer bruce dickinson he he said you know we're like farmers we have our field and we're tilling that field we don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager, he said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that 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 they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always... I've always taken a great lesson from that. How do you you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the, the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive sort of community or cult or club with you and and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that, you know, how to, how to develop that thing. You know, Stefan Zweig would say, and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden, he, he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following, a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it, who trusted me, and whose trust I must not disappoint. And I think that's wonderful advice, whether you're, you know, a baker or a mechanic, or a best-selling author or a multi-platinum musician. Is how do you achieve that following and and build that platform? That that's that's what the book is ultimately about.
0: And here's Ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing.
4: I talked to many creatives and writers and entrepreneurs, and I, I tend to find that they follow a, an arc where they, they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making, and it takes everything they have, and they get there, they limp across this finish line, and they think they're done. And sadly, that's not true. I liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish, and when you walk across the finish line instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck, they, they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again. And that second marathon is is marketing. How do you get attention for that work? If you If you can't find an audience, then so much of that work was likely in vain. There was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But making art for a living is a privilege. And one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling. Uh, There's a line from Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. He said, if you don't see any salespeople in your organization, then you're the salesperson. Who's going to pitch your work if not you, right? Who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it? And so that's what I end up telling a lot of creative. There's no magical firm that you can hire. There's no magical button you can press. There's no magical media outlet. Even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book, Perennial Seller, is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it. And so if you're not going to do it, who will? Peter Drucker, the management expert, he said that each project needs someone who says, I'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it. That that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as a essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or, you know, developing the uh, the vintage of wine that you're you're selling or the the boots that you wanted to produce right how can that be as much of a of a canvas to paint on to make something special as as the thing you you made itself and a lot of creatives fail at this i mean the 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 shelves groan with unwatched movies and unread books and you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind. You know, if you build it, they will not come. That is not how it works. You have to make them. You have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full, until the, the, the seats are filled. And that's why you did this work in the first place right certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project purely for their own satisfaction Uh, otherwise why would they have ever released it in the first place and so that idea of of taking ownership of of it is the difference i think between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies and i think every artist would rather whether they admit it or not reach five million people than five
0: And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on our American Stories. our American stories although you may not know what auto tuning is there's no doubt that you've heard it in fact you just did with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas Boom Boom Pow auto tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off pitch is this new music technology a good or a bad thing and is it really new
1: here's Greg Hengler with the story. Auto-tune has become the Botox of pop music, but like the commonly used neurotoxin, could auto-tuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look.
5: Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! I'd know you
1: anywhere Here's music writer Dave Tompkins
4: like We always have this attraction from an from early age at altering our voices I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party and, and here's a way to um, explore different characters and what's more human than wanting to be something else?
1: Here's musician Ben Harper
5: More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Barvin Gay or Roger Troutman. Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, hook it up to an electrical charge, and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice, through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat, was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. After an hour of recording with that thing, it heard. So now they have what's called auto-tune, and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it, and is equally as cool.
1: The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father.
3: Uh, Hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, Lord sounds like
1: a girl.
6: Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it?
1: I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts.
3: Give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good.
7: Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah,
8: yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer I can actually quantize Sparkling, everything. Feeling good, feeling pack good, up instruments. Dots, and yeah, then finally yeah, I use the yeah, auto tune.
1: Yeah. Here's Hall of Fame singer, songwriter, and record producer Linda Perry. Would you auto-tune Patty Smith?
3: No. Carol King. No, Janis Joplin. Oh my god. She if they put autotune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that believe. Oh, do you believe in life and, love? and you know that's where that came from. That sound came from and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went and they were like what is that? That's
6: cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip hop artists, they discover they actually really like the sound of autotune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural one of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm loving
1: you, way I wanted to. Here's musician I to do, Bonnie Raitt.
3: There's something great about not fixing stuff. you know. I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up and it just loses a lot of what, the edge to it.
1: Here again is Ben Harper.
5: Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means... It's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales.
1: Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's.
3: That woman can sing and she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble, when she tries to perfect the vocal. Troubled waters there, but when Christina just sings, As soon as she said, "Don't look at me," I heard it—the vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful. And suddenly, it's letting go of ego and being open to failing. Now and then, I get insecure. The beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it, it was just, it it was emotional. That was the take that I knew, right, that that was the master take. I added the drums and everything after the fact. And Christina kept on coming to me, I got to re-sing that, you know, when can I re-sing that? I'm like, re-sing it? Are you crazy? This is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. So So she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It It's like seven months of this, like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, shes I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song. If Even that, I just stopped. And I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already, you're over-singing, you're over-perfecting, and you're ruining this song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? what am i doing what am i doing wrong i don't understand this form of perfection and then i finally realized there is no perfection it's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful it's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're gonna get everything right because that's what the true beauty of life is it's about not really getting it right it's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now
5: certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees soul isn't soulfulness isn't there's such a huge great soulful place for technology and music there is but there is a place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle.
6: Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and. If you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music in all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique. The
8: ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart.
9: We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. What we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic.
1: For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Today.
0: Great job, as always, Greg, and, well, you haven't heard that one before, because I hadn't. Auto-tune versus imperfection, the story of music, in a way, and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
1: network.org
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1933, a radio station in Detroit, WXYZ, debuted a new program. In the depths of the Great Depression, just weeks before the inauguration of FDR, came this.
5: With the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty, How Silver! The Lone Ranger! With his faithful Indian companion Toto, the masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. The stories of his strength and courage. His daring and resourcefulness have come down to us through the generations. And nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past and the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver, the Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver! Let's go, big fellow! I'm Silver! (laughs)
0: The Lone Ranger was created by WXYZ station owner George W. Trendle and writer Fran Stryker. Fighting outlaws with his great horse Silver and his faithful Indian companion Tonto, The Lone Ranger was an instant hit, first on radio and then in movies and on TV for the next quarter century. Who was that masked man fighting crime on the frontier? Writer Fran Stryker created an original story about six Texas Rangers ambushed by
10: outlaws. Other ranger. All dead. Dead. Ah. Uh, you, only Ranger left. You Lone Ranger. Tonto, those killers know me by sight. If they know one man escape, they'll look for him.
2: And them not know one escape. Tonta five men. Make six grave. Crook think you die with others. Good.
10: Then my name shall be forever buried with my friends. From now on, my face must be concealed. A disguise, perhaps. Or a mask. That's it. A mask. With your help, Tonto, I'll get every one of those crooks. In the ranger's eyes, there was a light that must have burned in the eyes of knights in armor. A light that through the ages lifted the souls of strong men who fought for justice. For God. I'll be... The Lone Ranger.
0: But this was no flawed, frustrated anti-hero. The Lone Ranger never drank or smoked. He never swore and used perfect grammar. He was a role model for children and shot the guns out of the hands of villains instead of killing them. And showwriter writer Fran Stryker created a creed by which the Lone Ranger lived. Here it is recited at the Booth Western Art Museum in Cartersville, Georgia in 2013 during a celebration of that masked rider of the plains.
10: I believe that to have a friend, a man must be one. That all men are created equal and that everyone has within himself the power to make this a better world. That God put the firewood there, but that every man must gather and light it himself in being prepared physically, mentally, and morally to fight when necessary for that which is right. That a man should make the most of what equipment he has. That this government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall live always. That men should live by the rule of what is best for the greatest number. That sooner or later, somewhere, somehow, we must settle with the world and make payment for what we've taken, that all things change but truth, and that truth alone lives on forever, in my creator, my country, my fellow man.
0: The Lone Ranger Creed, my creator, my country, and my fellow man. Words we don't often hear these days in superhero movies. The Lone Ranger continues in the pages of comic books and movies, the latest was in 2013, and in generations of young people that listen to the radio program Or saw the TV show. But it all started on this day in history in 1933 on one radio station in Detroit. And that piece came from one of our producers, Beowulf Rockland. Beowulf, how did you first get introduced to The Lone Ranger?
9: Well, Lee, I had always listened uh, from an early age uh, to radio, I can remember listening to uh, the great Paul Harvey from about the age of five or six. And when I was around nine or ten, I started listening to old radio shows. My, my grandfather uh, gave me some tapes, introduced me uh, to them, and I realized that one of my local radio stations would play three hours of old-time radio shows every Sunday evening. And uh, what I would do is I would take my $2 allowance. I would buy some really cheap audio tapes to record them all, play them back later during vacations, during family road trips. I love Burns and Allen. I love Jack Benny. But one of the ones that stuck with me the most was The Lone Ranger. I love the the exciting trumpet theme from the william Tell overture that opened the program i loved the lone rangers fight against villains i loved the the moments where his identity his mask was about to be removed and his identity possibly revealed of course that would never happen and to this day i still have some of those tapes kicking around my my parents house
0: and do you still have the tape recorder you recorded those shows on
9: No, sadly, the uh, tape recorder that I used to record that has long since uh, gone away. I used to go into my parents' room, where my mom had a combination uh, tape player and radio. I would roll on all of those radio programs, flip them over uh, in between shows so that I could get one show uh, per side. It was one of those big, clunky 1980s things. And uh, it's long since gone the way of the dinosaurs, unfortunately. But the memories and the images from the Lone Ranger live on in my mind, as they do for many, many people.
0: Well, thanks for sharing those memories. Beowulf, as always, he's a new contributor here on Our American Stories. This day in history, the Lone Ranger was born in 1933 on a radio station in Detroit, WXYZ. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network, fighting hard for public policies that help small businesses turn into big ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings the story of someone not too far away from our studio here in Oxford, Mississippi, in a small town of 11,000 people called West Point.
8: Throughout almost all of human history, our lives looked like this. People spent a lot of their time, half their time maybe, getting
7: food for the family. And then over time, with mechanization and all that, it
8: just became less and less. And as they say, time is money. And thankfully for us, food today is more of a function of money than time. It's less than 10% if you're fortunate enough to be an American living today. Thanks to mechanization, the invention of machines that this gentleman, George Bryan, mentioned. Thanks to the specialization in careers, so we all don't have to have the same one job of getting food. Thanks to the world getting smaller and faster through technology. And thanks to the march of economic freedom in the world that's enabled all of this, but that doesn't mean these changes were easy.
7: The paternal side of our family came well, from Ireland and into North Carolina, down through Georgia and into Alabama in the early 1800s. My grandfather, he came up here in 1890 and worked in the grocery business, and then he started a meat market here in 1908, a Brian's Meat Market. and. And he and his wife had five sons. My father was one of them. He worked in the meat market, but when the meat market closed in '34, and my grandfather passed away, only two of them—my father and uncle—they were out selling cattle and shipping them to Memphis, and they weren't making any money. They would buy two or three cattle and load them up, and take them all the way up to Memphis. You know, no, no telling what kind of roads and. When they got up there and got back, my dad said, we lost money, you know. And so that's when they decided in probably late 35 to start the meat company here. A pork processing company called Brian Foods. It was a fairly complicated business because there was so many moving parts. You know, we were sort of a disassembly line. I used to say, you know, cars assemble cars. We disassembled the pork. When you're taking a, a hog, you slaughter the hog, and then you chill it, and then you disassemble it, and you get the different parts, and you either sell them fresh, or you further process them, or you make hot dogs out of certain, you know, a hot dog's a good made product. I mean, people say, well, I don't know what's in a hot dog. Well, an all-beef hot dog, or a beef and pork hot dog, and beef, pork, chicken is a good hot dog. It's great. It's got a lot of protein. You know, you got bacon, and hams, and I still eat a lot of ham today. I love ham. It's my favorite meat protein. I eat it every day. I don't eat bacon every day. I like bacon, but I like ham better. It's just a little leaner. But they used to say in the meat industry we use everything but the squeal. You know, we try to figure out how to use the squeal. But we did. We We had to and, you know, use the feet and the ears and the the ears you could make different products out of. They make dog, you know, they dry them and make dog treats out of them. And the feet, they pickled the feet and beat the meat out of the... So there, there was something to do with all parts of the animal. We made most every product that could be made and then we did a lot of canning. We canned a lot for the Army in the 40s during World War II. We made stews and chilies and tamales and sausages and when we became federal inspected we could ship across state lines with the first federal inspected meat plant in Mississippi and so we start shipping to Alabama and Tennessee in different states we used to ship a lot of sausage overseas to school lunch programs in Puerto Rico that was a big deal when we got an order to to make Big number ten can for the school lunch program in Puerto Rico. I mean, that was a big deal. We people liked it because a lot of people got to work some overtime, you know, making making all that product. So it was a fascinating business to learn where all that went. And I can remember, you know, after three or four years, I woke up one morning and said, "I, I got it. I know where it all goes, and I know what it's all worth." And I didn't have to think about it anymore. I had learned it. I worked here as a kid, you know, putting the keys in an envelope when you open the Vienna cans. We were the largest Vienna sausage makers in the country throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, we made a lot of Vienna sausage here. Vienna sausage is just a certain kind of sausage that goes in a can. It's the small cans, four ounce cans. It has, I think it's seven links in it. And it's packed in water. And you eat it with crackers and cheese and. It was sort of a staple item in those days, you know. And then, in the early days, there was a, a key that you had to unlock the top of the can, and so we had to put keys in the boxes so people could unlock the can. They didn't have the pull top in the early years, so we had to count so many keys in an envelope. When I was ten or twelve years old, at my first job, my cousin and I we did it, and. Uh, I think it were 24 cans per case, so we had to try to get 24 or 5 keys in there. And occasionally we'd get a letter and say, there's only 22 keys in the. I'd blame it on my cousin, you know. I said, I know I can count. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of learn the business from the ground up. I always believed in that. Anybody starting out in business, and I tell our grandchildren, you know, Learn everything you can about the business, what it is, what makes it go. and Then how can you add value to that business? People don't want you if you can't add value. You know, you can go go to work and say, I'm working at so-and-so, but if you're not adding value and improving the business performance, they don't really need you there. I used to tell our people that, you know, we had a lot of people come to work every day when I was here at Bryan and We had 1,800 people here in that plant, and they all can. And I said, everybody that comes in that gate every day, they want to do a good job. you got to think they want to do a good job. Now, some don't. Some are there. And how does everybody doesn't love their job? I mean, unfortunately, and I tell our grandchildren, try to find something you like. But Whatever you do, do the best you can and try to improve every day. You go to work, and you try to make some contribution that improves that business and improves your life and other people around you. So I've kind of always had that attitude if I'm going to get up in the morning and go somewhere and do something, try to do it better, you know. And my brother became president here. And I started working full-time in 65 or six at the plant. I started out in manufacturing, and I worked in all different departments, learning the manufacturing part of the business. And then we merged in 68 with Sarah Lee. And we didn't really have titles until we merged and then they gave us a title. I was production manager. And I did that for probably six years. And then I got into sales and marketing in the early 70s. And and then in 74, my brother left to go to Chicago. They called and asked him if he would come run the business. And he was my mentor. He was a brilliant, still is a brilliant businessman. He asked me to take over the plant here and be president. I told him I didn't want to do it. I said, I'm not old enough. I'm not experienced enough. It was about 29, 28 or 29. I actually tried to get him to promote somebody else to the job. I said, promote him and I will work with him. He said, no.
8: How often do you hear that one? someone rejecting power when offered it
7: well we grew up in a small town and it's a lot different when you you know you don't you have humility you you know it's just something that my mother taught us and my father you know that that you you need humility to to get along with people and work with people so we never we never thought we would indifferent anybody else you just don't do that
0: And when we come back, more of the story of George Bryan, his life story. And again, we tell every kind of business story here on this show. We've told Fred Smith's, the chairman and founder of FedEx, Bernie Marcus's, the founder of Home Depot, Henry Ford, and so many others. When we come back, George Bryan's story here on Our American Stories.
2: To hear more stories like this, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter, where we'll send you our best stories every week.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we return to George Bryan's story. His family's pork business, Bryan Foods, had just merged with Sarah Lee. And when his brother John was asked to run the whole business, John wanted 29-year-old George to run Bryan Foods. George told him no.
7: And he said, well, you go home and think about it. And he kind of forced me to do it. And of course, after a while, I liked it, but I didn't like it the first year or two because I was trying to learn so much. And He wrote me a letter about how to run the business. And it was a classic letter of to your brother of what to do and what not to do. And I, I still read it today, you know. And, and so I based my business philosophy off of that letter. And I don't know whether anybody asked him to do it. I think he was probably afraid, because you know he was running an overall business, so he didn't want Brian Foods to to fail. <laughs> so he did it, you know, for that. He, and he probably had more confidence in me than I did. But if you kind of followed his letter, it was kind of hard to fail, you know, if you really stayed on what he said about you know how to treat people, how to work on cost, how to run scared. It was kind of like, you know, run run like something may happen, you know, run like there's somebody chasing you.
8: But he uh, he was my mentor growing up. And George wasn't the only person that John meant something to. You
7: know, we went through a lot of
8: interesting times in Mississippi in the 60s and
7: during the civil rights era. and. My brother was a strong proponent of helping and move civil rights along. They closed the swimming pool here during integration and filled it in and made it a park. And then he raised the money and went up and built another pool for everybody to swim in.
8: The school district also resisted integration. The Supreme Court ordered it in 1954, but many towns like West Point refused to well into the 60s. In fact, their commitment to segregation was so fierce that they rather would have shut down all public schools than to integrate them. And so, that's what they did. Thankfully, this businessman, John H. Bryan, was equally committed to his position. In the absence of open public schools, he refused to send his kids to all-white private schools and instead joined the black community in suing the school board. When the previously black elementary schools eventually reopened, his two children were among its students. Because of a lot of forces, including this racism, the diminished opportunities it led to, and also the increasing mechanization of farming that eliminated work, Six million black Americans left the South and went up north, especially to cities like Chicago in what's become known as the Great Migration. I have a friend who lives in Chicago.
7: His name is Charles Watkins, and he works at the University Club up there. He's a maitre d'. And I didn't know Charles, but I was up there having dinner there with a little reunion, and somebody told me about him and said he was from West Point and that he had written a book. And I got the book. And he talked about the migration in the 40s and the 50s, and he said one thing that that Brian Foods did, he said it kept a lot of people at home from migrating to the North. And we did, we had, in those days, four, five, six hundred African-Americans working here, and they had
8: good jobs, and they didn't go to Chicago. One of the geniuses of America is its competition among cities among regions, and among companies that forces all of them to become better and serve its customers, us, better. I think looking at
7: competition, seeing what they were doing, learning from that, I think there was a little bit of uh, we don't measure up to the big boys, but someday we want to. You know, we want to strive to get better and we want to be known and we want to be able to walk in a room with Oscar Mayer and they know who we are. You know? And that and some of that drives you, you know. Sometimes you just outwork people. You just have a dedication to... A lot of sacrifices made sometimes to growing businesses and working on them. We were working Saturdays. I always worked on a daily list. My brother taught me that. I used to go in fairly early and write a list of things I had to do that day. And I'd maybe limit it to 15 or 20, but what do I need to do best today to contribute to the business? and What needs to be done, what I, I can't put off, you know? And I always felt better when I went home. At night, and had 90% of them done. Not that you could get them all done every day, but you had to have a plan, you know? I didn't like it when I left two or three on the list after the day. I've always told our children, I said, you can't let time rule you. You've got to rule time. And too many people just get up in the morning and
8: let things happen. Under George's intentional leadership of Brian Foods, a lot of intended things happened. It
7: wasn't a large business then. I mean, it was maybe a $75 million business and... And then we grew it to about a $400 million business and then it continued to grow after I went to work for Sara Lee in 82.
8: As the CEO of all of their food companies and opened his headquarters in Memphis. And then I
7: worked 20 years for the corporate and traveled all over the world buying companies merging. We bought Jimmy Dean Sausage, Hillshire Farm Ballpark. portfolio of meat companies and we had about 26 plants in the U.S. and we had 26 in Europe and we had four in Mexico. We built our business over years, you know, we gradually built it and when we would increase sales and increase profits, we'd put that money into marketing and advertising and just kept building. We started off with a small budget and built it into a larger budget. And then I retired in 2002, as my brother did. We didn't really know we were each going to leave, but he left and I left, because I'd been in it 38 years
8: working in, in that meat business. Four years later, with the Bryan brothers no longer in the business, Sarah Lee decided to shut down Brian Foods' processing plant in their hometown of West Point, Mississippi, with its 1,600 It was the toughest thing we've ever been through. And, of course, we weren't living here.
7: We were in Memphis, and uh, we started hearing wind of it. And people told me, they said, they're doing things down here, and it looks like they may close the plant. And so the mayor was my brother-in-law, and I called him, and I said, y'all need to, you know, I don't know the people running Sierra Lee anymore. My brother didn't know them. It had changed, and... We didn't know them, and, and I said, I didn't understand. I said, why can't they keep some of the plant open and keep it going because it's gonna be devastating to the West Point world, and with that many people here and their families and generations of their families had depended on this plant for a living, and they just whack it off. I didn't understand it, and so we, we met with
8: them and tried to buy the plant even though George and John were retired, they cared for their former employees and hometown so much that they felt compelled to try to keep it alive.
7: Most businesses think a lot more of the people that work for them than you give us credit for. And, and I don't like that. I don't like thinking that everybody's a, if you're a captive to something wrong. That's not right. And A lot more stories the other way of what businesses do. And businesses don't run without good employees. They don't run without good employee relations. There's some bad stories, too. I mean, I know that. But you can't take the bad stories and make them all
0: stories. And you don't hear that story much in the media, folks. A retired CEO concerned about the closing of a plant in his old hometown. And that, of course, is West Point, Mississippi. When we come back... We'll find out what happened to that plant and what happened to that town. George Bryan's story, West Point, Mississippi's story, here on Our American Stories. Turn to the final portion of this remarkable story of the Bryan family. George Bryan is retired from Sara Lee when the company tries to shut down the processing plant his family had built in their hometown of West Point, Mississippi.
7: What they were going to do is just close it and then sell it to some liquidator. And I called the then chairman of Sara Lee and I, I told her I said. We'll entertain buying it, but we got to have the brand. We can't buy the plant with no brand. And then how are we going to pay the severance if the plant has to close? If it starts losing a lot of money because the market changes on us, hog market goes way up, you know, you go through those cycles. And, and if we didn't have a brand to protect us during that, if everything we sold was a commodity, we couldn't get through it. And I told them that and finally we met with them and they wouldn't consider the brand, they just wouldn't consider it and they wouldn't pay the severance if we had to close it. So it was just too much risk. And it hurt bad, but we just had to back off. I called these friends that were helping, I said, we just can't do it. I said, as much as I want to do it, I don't want to do something stupid and if we buy it and have to close it in two years that's worse than and they don't have severance because we can't pay it. The employees got nothing at least they got some severance, they got some unemployment, whatever they got it wasn't enough. believe me it, wasn't enough for what they had done you know to to grow the business and help. They went ahead and closed it and sold it to a liquidator. And the liquidator started working on it, and he worked on it, worked on it, and it's, it's still a ragged mess down there. It's been uh, 11 years. They still hadn't gotten the site cleaned up. Unemployment hit, what, 18% in, in the worst of times. It hurt everybody. It hurt uh, the family. It hurt my brother a lot. And he didn't, he wouldn't come down and go by the plant. And I wouldn't go by there. I would go the back way. I wouldn't go by the plant. And I finally got to where I could drive by there and not get sick, you know, looking at it. See it, see it shut down and see it from what it had, you know, 75 years ago and that, that didn't feel good and then my my cousin bought it and it's turned it into a mission and he's a minister in Starkville and a good man and he he turned it into a mission and he's trying to do things down there to help people and rehab and AA and have uh meetings and you know turn the old office building and he's got a master plan he's working on it takes money and time but I think it's probably the best thing for it, you know, and we all support him in it. Uh, He's gradually working on it as he can, and he's turned it into a mission of
8: hope for local people in the area. George has spent a lot of his life on Mississippi's economic development. In 1988, he built a semi-private golf club in West Point called Old Waverly, and it's been named one of the top 100 golf courses in the country and the best one in Mississippi. And in 2016, he opened a public course across the street called Mossy Oak, and it's already been named one of the top 100 modern courses in the country.
7: I mean, we've got a lot of property owners here we pay a lot of taxes and we employ people we have 130 40 people working here and and i feel a responsibility to those people we help try to develop businesses that members here
8: you know we do that we have caddies at mossy oak i was a caddy from about ages 12 to 18 and that's our image of most caddies and George certainly has those too, but he's got a couple of a different breed.
7: We have uh, two or three or four that have come in from other parts of the country and settled in here to, because they like the area and they like Mossy Oak. A guy named Mike Troublefield who came in from New Jersey, he's been out on the tour a long time and. Mike's been working here two years, and he's caddied a lot on the LPGA. And he comes in and works. When he gets a little slow, he'll go out and caddy and come back. But these caddies are unusual guys. You know, they're kind of nomads. They like to go and kind of be their own boss. And one in particular who uh, came in here was a guy named Jack Lightfoot. Jack was out on the tour for 20 or 25 years. He's in his 60s. He came in here and fell in love and stayed here. He didn't have a car, so he walked back and forth to town every day. It's occasionally somebody would pick him up. Well, he got cancer about two years ago in his leg. And we helped him get it fixed and all. And he kept catting. And all of a sudden, he got another form of cancer. But sad story, he passed away earlier in the year. And he told me, he said, I, I went to see him when he was in hospice. And I said, Jack, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, I just want to be out there at Mossy Oak where I can see everybody. So we... uh Built a little monument to him on the in the middle of the golf course, which where he can see everything out there. You can stand in the center and see the whole golf course it's up elevated, and we have a marker out there, Jack Lightfoot Caddy, and he said, This is my home, but he'll be remembered forever here. We did a dedication to him and um He's a guy I'll never forget because uh, he he came here and liked it. He didn't have any family. He had uh, uh, Melissa, my assistant, worked with him and made all the funeral arrangements. And he had some cash and his pocket had a lot of cash in his pocket. Didn't have a bank account. Put it in the bank and and Jack said, you know, after you deal with my funeral arrangements than uh, put it in a caddy fund, you know? And that's what she did.
8: George's approach to golf shows that golf can be about much more than a game.
7: Our two teachers here are two strong Christian men. And I always say, I said, they teach a lot more than golf. They teach patience, character, you know, every kind of virtue you can think and, and you can see it in the kids I mean you don't see many kids jerk kids today that are good golfers I mean they just don't they've got to have patience and knowledge and it's it's, it's a great game for that and it it teaches you a lot about life you know that's why I, I enjoy seeing these kids in the program because I know they're getting more than just learning how to hit a golf ball some of them are going to go on and take golf further, play college, you know, and do that. But some are just going to become businessmen and and teachers and educators, and, but they learn a lot. They learn a lot, and I mean, I, that's, that's what enthuses me about it. I mean, I've been fortunate to have a really good family. You know, I grew up in a good family, and people, my brother always used to say, you know, I had good parents, you know, you have good parents and, and you try to be a good parent and uh, you try to raise your kids and grandkids to, to be good in society and and perform and uh, still have a lot to do, you know, there's still a lot of time to correct any of the deficiencies you had or have and I enjoyed doing that. I, I probably wish I had more time to spend with the family. and doing things, not quite so much time in the business, you know, uh, but I've been involved in business so long, it's kind of hard just to walk away and say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to the beach. You know, my wife and I don't like to go to the beach and lay around. We, we're we not those kind of people. Not that I don't like going to the beach because I like being on the water, going in anything, but we like, uh, we say we don't like it sometimes. He says, are we going to do this the rest of our life? And I said, I don't know. You know, what are we going to do?
0: <laughs> and what a voice and what a matter-of-factness about him and so many men of his generation. My dad, the idea of retirement was just like, what? What am I going to do? I'm going to just do nothing? And work was their lives, and work is good. And so many young people, actually so many middle-aged people, don't know that work is a virtue, hard work is a virtue, earning value. To a company, to a community is a virtue. And boy, the pain of this guy listening and hearing about the plant that his family built to close, you could hear the pain still. Not even wanting to drive by it. The loss and all that pain to all those families. By the way, that's how vital business is to communities and why we have to defend them. Our American Dreamers segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. George Bryan's story, Brian Food's story. And a sad part of West Point, Mississippi's story. Good news about West Point. They've had some tremendous economic development teams there. The jobs are back. The economy's humming. This is Lee Habib. All of these stories here on Our American Stories.